ladies and gentlemen, it's Proclamation News and Gaverance. We're discovering arts and humanities, reading the module book A11. We're on 200, 205, Plato and the Socrates in Aliens, introducing Plato's Socrates. As, believes, as previously mentioned, most of Plato's dialogues portray Socrates discussing philosophical questions with other people. Many of them well-known figures of the time. However, the dialogues do not record conversations that actually happened. They are works of fiction, not historical accounts, but Plato's earlier works, including Leitch's, probably present a fairly accurate picture of the philosophical question that interested the real Socrates and the method he used to investigate them. Plato presents Socrates as primarily interested in moral questions. In particular, he is concerned with the qualities of virtues, of that the people in need of order to live, live a good life. In Lattice, for example, he is concerned with the nature of courage. Elsewhere, he discusses friendship, piety, tem uh, temperance and justice. Temperance is used here to translate the Greek term. Um, Sophocene. This is this has no exact equivalent in English, but it includes qualities such as moderation, modesty, modest, modesty, and self-restraint. Socrates does not try to provide answers to the question he raises, but instead asks other people what they think. Often picking people who might be expected to know about the issue in in. Laches, for example, his question about coverage is addressed to Laches and Nicias, who are both military generals. Once an answer is given, Socrates puts it to the test by asking a series of further questions. He claims that he adds nothing to the discussion, but simply asks the questions and points out any inconsistencies in the answer he gets. In the early dialogues, none of the other characters managed to give answers that the past Socrates test, the dialogues generally end with the other characters feeling baffled and frustrated. No doubt the real Socrates end often provoked a similar reaction. Nevertheless, Plato seems to have found this, uh, the real Socrates tireless questions for philosophical truth, both fascinating and inspiring. As he portrays him as a stirring love, well as infuriation, infuriation you can decide yourself whether you find the Socrates in children or merely annoying. We will look at Lattice in more detail, whatever your reaction. Though it is worth recalling what was said in Book 1, Chapter 5 about the Hermenian arguments, when we are trying to evaluate an argument, we, we usually need to focus on the argument itself, not on the reputation or personality of the person who is putting it forward. Even so, there is... One frequent complaint about Socrates, which that is worth a closer look. Some of Plato's characters and some of his readers are irritated by Socrates' refusal to put forward his um, views on his own, while being quietly ready to criticise the viewers of the others. The Socrates respond by saying that he generally does not know the measures to the questions. That he poses, but yet he does not seem to prefer some of the lines of thought to others. These are preferences. Help to determine the question he asks, and the lines of argument that he develops as a result. Conversations with Socrates often take certain recognisable turns, returning to the same points again and again. 
So it might look at Socrates as being irritatingly deceitful. When he claims not to know the answers to his questions, this is important not because it is irritating, but because it is hard to, uh, to understand. It seems unlikely that Plato intend to portray Socrates as guilty of deliberate deceit. So why does Plato present him on denying that he knows the answers, while at the same time favouring some answers over others? I will turn to this question once we can investigate the arguments presented in Laches. Introducing Plato's Laches, the conversation that Plato presents in his dialogue Laches is set in Athens at some point around 420 BCE. During a lull in the war with Sparta, two Athian gentlemen, Lysimachus and Milesius, are discussing how to educate their sons. They wonder whether a course of fighting in armour, equivalent perhaps to marital arts training today, would foster uh, courage and self-discipline in young men. They turn for advice for Nicias and Laetius, who were both generals in the Athian army. Laetius and Nicias play a crucial role in the dialogue, so it is worth nothing who they were and Plato presents them. Laetius, 475-418 BCE, was a prominent conservative politician and general. He died, he died at the battle at Mantinea, an important and unexpected defeat for Athens in the War of Sparta. In the dialogue, Plato presents Laetius as a rather combative and overconfident. As a practical man, rather than a deeper thinker, Schmid, 1992, Nicias 474-413 BCE, was an Athenian soldier and statesman who was known for his extreme caution. Along with Laetius, he helped to broke the broker the short peace of Nicias, which ended the first decade of the war between Athens and Sparta. In 415 BCE, was appointed as one of the leaders of an ill-fated expedition to Sicily, which ended in a disastrous defeat from the Athenian forces and Nicias' death. When the Athenian historian Thucydides 460-404 wrote an account of the expedition, he blamed the catastrophe party on the Nicias' cautious and hesitant leadership. See Thucydides 2000 later, I suggest that in latest Plato may be making use of the aspect of Nicias' reputation to hint at a philosophical point. At the start of the dialogue, Nicias and Leeches spend some time discussing the value learning to fight in armour. Unfortunately, they cannot agree, so Lysimus and Milesius ask Socrates to resolve the issue. Socrates, it suggests that the issue cannot be decided until another much broader question has been addressed. We should start our work on Leeches by looking in a short section in which Socrates introduces his question. Socrates' question. Reading a philosophical text. Reading a philosophical text can be time-consuming exercise because to understand what is going on it is necessary to pay close attention to the detail. It is often helpful to begin reading a whole section in order to get a gist and a focus on the sentences or paragraphs where the key points are made. You, you, are all, you may also find it useful to underline and highlight the key words or phrases but do not stop there. A good way to ensure that you have understood the key points is to put them in your own words. There is no need to rephrase everything. In fact, you are likely to find that some words or phrases cannot be changed without affecting the meaning of what is said. For example, if Plato is talking about courage or bravery, changing that to a daring or de uh, determination 
It's likely to sort his meaning. Your aim should be to express the key points as simply and directly as you can. This usually requires some thought and a lot of fine-tuning, so it's a good idea to write things down. You're about to read an extract from Pieto's latest. You will notice that each reading is identified using a mix of numbers and letters, for example. The first reading in latches 190 BD. This derives from an important uh, renaissance edition of Plato's work, published by Stephanus, a French uh, printer whose real name was Henry Istan in 1578. The number refers to the page in a Stephanus edition, and the letters A, B, C or D refers to a section of the page. This is now an standard way to identify a passage in Plato's writings. And you'll find his numbers in almost all translations of his works. In the activities in this chapter, we're going to look at extracts from Pla uh, the Plato's letters in his second work of Mino. The activity, reading 5.1 in the extract from Plato's Leches, 190 BD. Read through the extract now, studying it carefully. I have numbered each paragraph in order to make it easier to refer to particular claims. Read through the extract once, then focus on paragraphs identified in questions below. In paragraph 3, we have, we, um, what reasons do Socrates give for shifting focus on discussion? In paragraph 11, what questions do Socrates propose that they should address? Do not worry if you have not phrased your answer exactly as I have. What matters here and elsewhere when we are trying to understand philosophical arguments is the meaning, not the precise word in use. The Socrates suggest that in order to find out to become victorious, they must decide what virtues. He, he suggests that we should address the more sp specific question, what is courage? It is a question about nature of the courage that Plato wants to explore in the latches, and the rest of the dialogue is spent to try to find an answer to it, and you may have noticed, latches is confident that he will be able to decide it. However, as we shall see, Socrates rejects latches first attempt by examining latches first answer and the reason Socrates gives for rejecting it. We can better understand uh, the nature of the question that Socrates is trying to ask. This Cyphians and Homer. In reading 5.5, which you'll read in the next activity, Socrates mentions the Scythians, a nomadic people who inhabited a large area in what is now central Ukraine and southern Russia, and who were known for their skills at carvery warfare. Socrates also mentioned the Greek poet Homer, who is composed from Lydiad, a poem about the legendary war between the Greeks and the Trojans. Aeneas was a Trojan hero. The poems are generally thought to have been composed at some time around the 18th century BCE. Look through reading 5.2, which is the next part of the Plato's Dialogue. When you have finished reading, note down the answers of the following questions. In paragraph 13, how does Leitch's answer Socrates' question? Why does Socrates reject Leitch's answer? Look especially at paragraph 22. Why does Socrates introduce his definition of quickness in paragraph 28? Leitch's answers Socrates' question by describing how a courageous infantryman might behave. Leitch's answers by presenting a specific example of courage. As a result, his answers leaves out many of the other examples of courageous behaviour both on and off the field of battle. Socrates wants Leitch's to turn to his attention away from specific examples and instead identify the characteristics 
and all examples of courage have in common. Socrates introduces his definition of quickness in order to demonstrate the kind of answer he wants. His definition does not give a particular example of quickness, but identifies what all examples of quickness have in common. Plato used to exchange between Socrates and Natchez to illustrate something about the nature of philosophical questions. Socrates, Socrates does not want Natchez to list particular cases of courage. He wants a general dis discussion of courage. One that can be applied across the board. Philosophical questions do tend to have a broad or general character. Mary Wollstonecraft, for example, was not interested in education of any particular group of girls, but girls in general. Admittedly, thinking about particular cases can often throw light on broader philosophical questions. In Plato's dialogue, Socrates often appeals to a particular case in order to test philosophical claims to illustrate key points, but the question that the dialogue set out to address are very, very general ones. What is courage? What is justice? What does it mean to know something? Questions like this cannot be answered simply by giving examples. As Socrates points out in this passage, even so we might wonder whether the question can be answered as neatly and concisely as Socrates seems to imply with his example, definition of quickness. It's not all obvious that we can capture the nature of courage in a single sentence. I shall not pursue this point here, but you may wish to think about the further, further yourself. Leitch's and Greek edition. Leitch's answers to Socrates' question. He reflects traditional Greek views about courage. On this traditional conception, courage was associated in the first instance with the qualities required of citizen soldiers fighting in defence in their city. In particular, citizens, soldiers, fighting and hospitalites. Hospitalites were heavily armed soldiers who would fight in rows, with each man's shield protecting not only his own left side, but also the right side of the soldiers standing next to him. In this formation, each soldier depended on his neighbour to stand his ground through what may have been grueling struggle with the enemy. In this context, it is perhaps not surprising the standing in the ranks and not one away was traditionally regarded as a standing example of courage celebrating speeches and poetry, for example. You might compare latest definition with the swords of the Spartan poet Tartius, who was writing some of centuries earlier. Here is courage. When a man plants his feet and stands in the foremost spears relentlessly, all thought of foul flight completely forgotten, and it was well trained his heart to be steadfast and to endure, and with a word encourages the man who is stationed beside him. Hence he is asking Latches to take a step back from the particular example of courageous behaviour. Socrates is asking him to move beyond what is the traditional conception of courage. Is courage endurance? Turn to reading 5.3 at the point. Just read the first two paragraphs. How does Latches define courage in paragraph 31? Think back to the examples of courage who give right at the very start of the unit of the module website. Do you think that Latches definitely fits your examples of courageous actions? How does it compare to your own initial thoughts about whose examples have in common? Is a passage latches produce a second definition of courage? He suggests that the courage is endurance. How you how you answer this question will depend on what your initial thoughts were. If your initial thoughts were rather different from latches definition, you might want to reflect a little further. Would you not now like to change your mind, or do you disagree with latches definition?
Soccer 8 confirms that Latches has produced the right kind of answer to his question. In other words, Latches not just given a specific example of coverage, but has offered a general definition that tries to capture what all cases of coverage have in common. Soccer 8 then be uh, begin, begins to examine Nietzsche's proposal by asking Latches a series of questions. He gets Latches to agree that what is a uh, kind of endurance, foolish endurance. That does not mount to courage, although Socrates does not spell it this out. The implication is that Latch's second answer is too general. It includes some cases that are not case of courage. As Sosrit asks this question, he gets Latch's to assent to the different steps of an argument. As explained in Book 1, Chapter 5 on Mary Wollstonecraft, the aim of an argument is to support and prove a particular conclusion. It does, it does this by presenting one or more claims that, taken together, provide reason for thinking that a conclusion is true. A claim offered in support of a conclusion is sometimes called a, a premise. In this section, we'll begin by trying to work out the Socrates' argument is. Our goal will be set out in clearly and precisely as possible. In section 4.1 of this chapter, we will consider how we might evaluate the argument. Now I'll turn back to reading 5.3. This time, read the whole parish, uh, passage, paragraphs 31 to 39, studying it slowly and carefully. The passage contains an argument, a conclusion, and two premises that support it. Bear in mind that Socrates does not state the premises himself, but puts them as questions to Leitch's. And the premises and conclusion of the argument are things that Leitch's himself agrees to. Start by trying to find a Socrates conclusion. Hinted in the paragraph 38, but be careful, Socrates, sum up the whole argument here. Try to find the conclusion he is arguing for. Reword the conclusion as simply as directly as you can. Turn it from a question into a statement. Remember to keep the key words the same. Now look at the Socrates' two premises. Hint the first premises in the end of paragraph 32. The second premises is paragraph 36 again. Reword. The two premises as simply directly as you can. Turn them into the questions in statements. Remember to keep the key words the same. Now put the whole argument together. These two premises followed by the conclusion. Here's what I came up with. Premises 1. Courage is always admirable. Premises 2. But foolish endurance is not admirable. Conclusion. So foolish endurance is not courage. In this setting out Socrates' uh, argument, I try to present as briefly and precisely as possible. Although it has involved some rephrasing, I've kept the keywords courage, endurance, admirable, and I've used in a consistent way throughout. I've also numbered the premises to make it easier to refer to later to So premises one is courage is always admirable. Premises two, but foolish endurance is not admirable. A conclusion. So foolish endurance is not courage. Words to look out for and use. You may have noticed that Socrates introduced a conclusion with the word so. When analysing an argument, it helps to look out for the words or phrases such as so, therefore, or as a result, which are often to mark out the conclusion of an argument. Conversely, terms such as because, since, or after all, often mark out the premises of an argument. When you are representing your own arguments, it is helpful to use these these uh, kinds yourself to help readers follow a line of thought. This is useful not just in philosophy but in academic discipline. 
evaluating Socrates um, argument. Now that I've lo located Socrates argument in the text, we can start to evaluate it from an argument to a good argument. It must give us a reason to believe the conclusion or put it in another way. The premises must support the conclusion. There are two test premises need to meet in order to support the conclusion. The first test, the premises needs to be true. The second test, the interference from the premises to the conclusion must be a good one. In other words, the premises were true that would support or even prove the conclusion. To bring this out, consider the two terrible arguments. Both are meant to settle the question, could Socrates swim? Terrible argument 1, premises 1, all ancient Athens could swim. Premises 2, Socrates was an ancient, an Athen. Conclusion, so Socrates could swim. Terrible argument 2, all ancient Athens lived in ancient times. Premises, premises 2, Socrates was an ancient Athen. Conclusion, so Socrates could swim. Both of these arguments are terrible, but they are terribly for different reasons. The first argument is terrible because the, f the first premises is almost certainly false. Hence, terrible argument 1 fails the first test because of the premises not true. Notice, though, that the terrible argument 1 does pass the second test if both premises have been true. We'd have, we would have had a good reason to believe the conclusion. T terrible argument 2 is in contrast to the passing test since both the premises are true. But this argument fails to the second test. The truth of the two premises gives us a reason to accept the conclusion as the no bearing on the matter. For an argument to be a good argument, it needs to pass both tests. So we can evaluate an argument by checking if, the if it passes both tests. It does. The argument gives us a good reason to accept the conclusion. If the argument fails one or both tests, that implies that the argument has failed. Still, that does not necessarily mean that the conclusion is false. Who makes a bad argument bad? It is not that the conclusion is false, but the pr um, premises fail to support it. What is implied then? It is not the conclusion is false, but that the particular argument has not provided a good reason to accept it. Activity 5. Look back at um, Socrates' argument as I set out in the previous activity. Premises 1. Courage is always admirable. Premises 2. But foolish endurance is not admirable. Conclusion. So, so foolish endurance is not courage. For the moment, assume that the two premises are true. In other words, assume that Socrates' argument passes the first test. Does the argument pass the second test? Is this prem If the premises were true, would they support the conclusion? Yes, the argument passes the second test, if the courage is always admirable, but foolish endurance is not admirable, then foolish endurance cannot be the example of courage. As we've just seen, Socrates' argument passes the second test, if both the premises were true. They would support his conclusion, but does not pass the first test. Are Socrates' premises both true? or at least plausible, until we have decided this, we cannot know whether or not the argument is a good one. one. One, on the face of it, Socrates' premises do look plausible, but it is also worth thinking carefully about the premises of an argument. One way to do this is to consider how well the premises apply to a particular case. Consider, for example, in a case of someone, let's call uh, Wanda, who sets off a dangerous trek across the Antarctic. Antarctic with only minimal training equipment and without any means of communicating with the outside world. She does this just to win a small belt. Having set out on her journey 
uh, Wanda trudges on. Despite freezing temperatures, hostile terrain, hunger and loneliness, she's certainly displaying endurance. Nevertheless, I'm assuming she is behaving rather foolishly, in that the benefit of winning her bet is not worth hardship and dangers she is enduring. How should we describe this case? Here are three different ways which might dis uh, describe Wanda's behaviour. Take a little while to consider whether you agree with any of them. Verdict A. Wanda is not being courageous, just foolhardy, and there is nothing admirable in that. Verdict B. Wanda is courageous, but her courage is not admirable because it is not being used for a worthwhile end. Verdict C. Verdict B is quite uh, friendly but fair. Verdict C. Wanda's being courageous and courage is admirable, even if she's behaving rather foolishly. That's quite a nice one as well. Did you agree with A? If so, that suggests you agree with both the premises of Socrates' argument. Did you agree with B? If so, it suggests that you disagree with Socrates' first premises and claim that courage is always admirable. Verdict B implies that there can be cases of courage that do not merit admiration. I like, I like C to not put it down. Do you agree with C? If so, it suggests that you might disagree with the second premises of Socrates' argument. The claim of force endurance not my will. Verdict C suggests endurance can be merit admiration and even when it is foolish. I like, I like C. Perhaps you don't feel strongly one way or another. If so, it is nothing to worry about. Whether it is or not the premise of the argument are true, but not always easy to decide. Sometimes we can do this to keep in our mind until we find some other consideration that settles the issue. Socrates and Leitches have agreed that the false endurance is not courage, but there are cases of endurance that are not cases of courage. Endurance and courage cannot be the same thing, so Leitches' second attempt to define courage has failed. In the next part of the dialogue, which we'll investigate here, Socrates and Leitches try to improve on definition of courage as endurance. Once again, however, they run into difficulties. Socrates are, um, then asks Nicias if he can help. Page 220. If courage is courage a kind of knowledge? Work through reading 5.5, 5.4. How does Nicias uh, define a courage in paragraph 51? Nicias says the courage is, is knowledge and of what is fearsome and what is encouraging. Lattice characterised courage as the ability to behave in a certain way, to stand firm in the face of danger or hardship, in contrast, Nicias focus on the quality that he takes to explain courageous behaviour, a kind of knowledge or wisdom. The definition of courage may strike you puzzling, Lattice certainly thinks it is strange, and in the passage that follows this extract, which is not included in the uh, reading for this chapter, he, he accuses Nicias of uh, talking nonsense. Pressed by Leitches, however, Nicias says a little more about the kind of knowledge he takes courage to be. What Nicias has been in mind to technical of expert knowledge, for example, knowing what equipment to take on a journey across the Antarctic, Antarctic or knowing whether an ice sheet is likely to support one, one's weight. Rather, it is what we might call evaluate knowledge, knowing that the value of things, a courageous person will know whether it is working sac sacrificing their life for the sake of of military victory or whether it is worth risking wealth and reputation in order to defend a moral principle. As a result, they will whether sacrifice in their life is something to be feared and avoided or whether they should be encouraged by their prospect of victory 
In contrast, a cowardly person will be someone who overestimates the value of their own life and comfort in relation to their important goals why a foolhardy person will be someone who ignorantly puts too little value on a personal um, safety unlike later then Nicias is able to distinguish cases of courage from cases of mere fo uh, foolhardiness you might notice that Nicias does not try to explain what kinds of things a courageous person will value so his definition of courage will not settle for example, whether Wanda is being courageous or merely foolhardy to decide that, we would have to know whether personal safety is more valuable than winning a small bet. That would involve asking for the sorts of uh, further questions about the matters in life. Plato was acutely aware of the way in which philosophical question often le le leads to others, but he also insisted that we need to concentrate on one question at a time in order to make progress. So Nicias' de definition might be regarded as a step towards a complete account. In the first step, the Socrates is going to scrutinise in what follows. Before examining the response on Nicias' definition, I want to mention one possible objection to it. The objection does not get aired in Latius through Plato, does not discuss it elsewhere. Nicias' definition implies not just the knowledge or wisdom is needed for courage, but that is all needed for courage. Nothing is else is required. One objection that might be made to this is that people sometimes the best thing to do, but a lack of willpower, strength of mind to do it. Suppose that a man, out walking his dog on an isolated beach, sees a child struggling in the water. He knows that if he swims into the waves, he stands on a good chance of rescuing the child. He also knows that, despite the risk, that is what he ought to do. Will he necessarily attempt to rescue? Nicias seems to be assuming that when people really know the best thing to do, they will always act and that the knowledge if the dog does not try to rescue the child. Nicias will also have to insist that deep down he does not really know that this is the best thing to do. It is not obvious that Nicias is the right about this. An alternative explanation is that in the case the man knows what he should do but lacks the nerve or resolve to do it. This is still a controversial issue in among philosophers and you may wish to think about the questions for yourself. Knowledge and opinion. There is something puzzling about the Socrates' final argument against Nicias' defini definition of courage. Reading 5.6, you may have noticed when Nicias first introduced his definition early in the dialogue, he says it is the kind of thing that, as often as Socrates say, there is a very good suggestion that I've heard you make in the past, which you are not using. Reading 5.4, paragraph 40. Indeed, in other dialogues, Plato does not seem to present Socrates' flavoured view that all good qualities including courage, justice, piety and temperance can be defined in just that way Nicias ultimately defines courage. That is a knowledge of what is bad and what is good. Moreover, in these other dialogue, Socrates seems to recognise that it implies that all these good qualities are fundamentally the same thing and he seems to regard this not, not an objection to the kind of definition but as an interesting and important discovery so why? In Latches, the Socrates treat is this as an objection to Nicias' definition, rather than as an interesting result. Solve this puzzle, it may help you pay attention to Plato's views on a rather different issue, the difference between knowledge and opinion. Knowledge, opinion and stages of deadliest. A one physical question that interested Plato was the nature of knowledge. 
as he discussed this question a number of dialogues. In this section, we're going to read the extract from Plato's dialogue, Mino, which is probably written later. It portrays Socrates in the conversation with Mino. A rather idle and vain young astrocrat from fiercely of the North Greece. They spend much of the dialogue exploring the sea. The virtue is knowledge. The extract we are about to read, the Socrates and Mino are discussing the difference between knowing something and merely having a true opinion about it. In the extract, the Socrates mention their mythical uh, inventor, an artist, a deadliest. Perhaps this is known as a story involving deadliest concerts, his son, Icarus, who had been saved from drowned after flying to the close to the sun. In Mino, Socrates refers to a different legend about uh, Dead Daedalus, in which it was said that Daedalus has created statues that were so lifelike they couldn't move by themselves. A later writer, Pepilotus, tried to explain his legend by speculating that Daedalus was the first Greek um, sculpture to produce statues that stood with one foot in front of the other, instead of standing with both feet together. Pelagos, 1966. The statues, the Pelagos, as his minds are archaic, cool in the cool way, which are discussed in chapter one of his book. Whilst these statues may appear rigid and static to modern eyes, the Pelagos must have thought they have appeared positively dynamic compared to early statues. Reading 5.7 extract from Plato Mino. Read through the extract and answer the questions below. Don't worry if you find it difficult. Follow Socrates. Line of thought in the passage, we shall investigate how it links up in a moment. In paragraphs 89 to 95, what does Socrates suggest about the relative merits of knowledge and true opinion of it as guides to action? In paragraph 103, why does Socrates claim that the knowledge is more valuable than the true opinion? In paragraph 101, how does Socrates suggest that it is pos- possible to turn to true opinions into knowledge? At the start of reading 5.7, Socrates mentions Larissa which was a city in Mimo's homeland, Thessaly. Socrates suggests that any particular situation, knowledge and true opinion are equally reliable as guides and action. He illustrates this for an example of the two travellers. The first traveller knows how to get Larissa, while the other traveller merely has a true opinion about how to get there. Nevertheless, both travellers will set off the right direction. Socrates claims that the knowledge is more valuable than the opinion in the long run. This is because, like the statues of the deadliest, opinions tend to stray while knowledge stays with us. Socrates suggests that it is possible to turn to true to opinions into knowledge by figuring out what makes them true. In other words, knowing something involves not just behaving correctly, that is true, but also understanding why it is true. Focus first on the last of these claims that knowing something requires an understanding why it's true, at first glance, this might sound rather odd. Certainly, it does not seem to apply to chase the man who knows to root Larissa. Socrates does not suggest that the man understands why the root is a good one, only that he has tested it for himself. The suggestion that knowledge requires understanding makes more sense if we apply it to only certain kinds of knowledge, for example. Knowledge of physical and mathematics in these cases is more reasonable to suppose that we can come up to know things through the reason and reflection. However, it is impossible to find common thread running through in all these cases of knowledge. This is an idea that knowledge requires experience, so for yourself. 
Bern Ute, 1980, for example. Plato thinks it's in order how to know the Rissa is, is necessary to have travelled through the route herself. Similarly, it thinks in order how our philosophy truth must have worked through the issue as yourself so that you can grasp how the truth connects with other things that you believe. But why does Plato think that knowledge requires experience something for yourself? The answer lies with another claim about the Socrates reading 5.7 that the knowledge is stable and lasting while opinions can change. Plato's not sped out the connection in the extract, but the, the thought seems to be this. Suppose I can tell you the particular element is a good one, and you have to take the word for it, without really understanding why. In this situation, you could be easily be persuaded by someone else in that argument is a bad one. But once you understand why the argument is a good one, once you have thought it for yourself, you cannot be persuaded otherwise the knowledge has become your own. And it cannot be taken away by someone else. Plato spells it out for himself in another dialogue called Thetius. There, Socrates tells a story about a court case. In Socrates' story, the jurors have heard the case of a prosecution and are persuaded correctly as it happens. The defendant is guilty, but Socrates suggests the jurors do not know the defendant is guilty. After all, when they hear the case for defence, they might just as easily be persuaded the other way. In contrast, the eyewitnesses know what happened because what they what happened for themselves, and they cannot be persuaded that the defendant is innocent. Plato, nineteen seventy-three, page ninety-three to four. The claim that knowledge implies appreciating something for yourself has an important controversial implication. It implies that knowledge is something that we can apply as well, and for people around us in in Plato's dialogue. Symposium Socrates make the point a little ruefully when he says I only wish that wisdom were the kind of one thing shared by sitting next to someone if it flowered for instance from one that the wall is one from it that was empty like the water in two cups on the view of knowledge we cannot know to know something by parroting someone else's words even if that person is acknowledged expert nor can we imply soak-up knowledge for books, or for what a matter from the open university study materials, no matter how well qualified the author. Knowing something involves experiencing it for yourself, whether this means testing or out of route, work through an argument, or making up one's own mind about a controversial question, parroting someone else's will supply you, at best, even correct opinion, but not with knowledge. Claim that knowledge can be picked up a second appears in a number of dialogues, so it is likely that Plato believed it is to be true. It is important to note that it implies quite a radical departure from that way in which people are often think about knowledge. Many people would regard the testimony of of other people, friends, teachers, experts and eyewitnesses, and it is an important source of knowledge. Suppose, for example, that we that you ask some, uh, me how I know Lima is a capital city of Peru or the vacation protect the people. For illnesses, my first reaction would be to say that I know these things because I've been told them by other people whose expertise I trust, according to Plato. However, it's not enough to show that I know these things. If my only reason for believing these things is that I make an expert word for it, there is always a risk of another expert or an opponent expert could persuade me otherwise. 
to know something, I must have investigated it for myself. This is why this is a striking question, and certainly could be challenged here. However, I'd like to investigate how Plato's views on this issue might out help to explain Natchez's ends. In a way, it does. Why does Plato present Socrates and arguing against the claim that, in other dialogues, he seems favouring the interpretation that I shall present here is not the only possible one? Uh, Flastos. Nevertheless, I think that it is interesting and plausible. As we noted earlier, when Nicias first intervenes in a conversation, he explicitly says that he is repeating something that he has heard uh, Socrates say in the past. Nicias then is a parrot in Socrates' opinion. Indeed, some commentators have suggested that Plato is exploring Nicias' reputation for caution. Morris 2001, the test to saw. 1994 for Plato's contemporaries, in the fact that Nicias is not venturing his own opinion, but is ca um, cautiously following the Socrates' footsteps, may have well jumped in particular force. Moreover, Nicias' cautious brilliance and the Socrates may well be, may well explain why he returns into trouble. Since he is merely repeating Socrates' suggestion, he does not really grasp what he means or what might be true. In particular, it does not understand that it implies that courage, justice and temperance are fundamentally the same thing. As a result, he is unable to fend his definition. On this interpretation, then the conclusion that Plato invites us to draw the end of the latches is not the Nicias definition is false, but Nicias himself has uh, not thought it through. Erwin 95 to Pen 92. In other words, Plato's point is primarily about courage and about what is involved in doing philosophy. Doing philosophy is no matter of finding out what the experts think. It requires thinking for yourself and arguing for your own view. Without that, Plato believes philosophy cannot be a source of knowledge but only of opinion, which will run away as soon as it's challenged. True to his views, Plato does not spell his lesson out for us at the end of dialogue, rather he presents us with a puzzle that we have teased out for ourselves. In this section, I suggest that some of the further ways in Plato's views on knowledge might help to explain other features of the dialogues, including Nature's. While Socrates does not know the answers, earlier I mentioned that there is something strange about Plato's portrayal of Socrates. Socrates claims he does not know the answer to his own questions, while at the same time appealing to favour particular answers. This is a strain because it looks as if Plato portraying him as behaving in a deceitful way. However, Plato's distinction between the true opinions and knowledge points to an alternative explanation. Suppose that Socrates does have some opinions about questions that he poses. He may have been even fairly confident that these opinions are true. Nevertheless, he may also be aware that he cannot explain why they are true. Nevertheless, he may also be aware that he cannot explain what are true, even so, if the Plato's view, Socrates might deny that he knows the answer to his questions, for, as we have seen, Plato thinks that knowing the answer to a philosophical question implies understanding why it is true. We might still wonder if Socrates does not explain the point to the other characters. However, it is possible that this aim is not to deceive them, but rather enticing and us to puzzle out what means Flatos 1994. Plato's um, view on the knowledge may explain why he gives such a prominent role to the Socrates mentioned of question and answer. Socrates does not give lectures. 
Instead, his questions encouraged the other characters to think about the issue for themselves. March 2009. Even if questions often lead other characters towards certain conclusions, this discussion can proceed unless they understand and agree to each step in the argument. Socrates' method, then, might, might be well might be used to help provide achieve the kind of understanding that Plato believed was required for philosophical knowledge. It does by prompting people to think the issue through for themselves. A mosaic found in Roman city of Pompeii is thought to represent Plato in discussion of his students in the academy. The mosaic was made centuries after Plato's death, so it cannot be treated as direct evidence for his practice in the academy. But I've concluded is it here because it presents an image of philosophical discussion of the sort that we find in dialogues. You might note the particular Plato presumed to be the figure sitting under the tree. It is represented as being surrounded by students, not lecturing in form uh, front of a class. You might contrast this portrayal of philosophical discussion with the image presented in figure 10. Finally, Plato's views on knowledge might explain how we choose right dialogues rather than essays by writing a dialogue. Plato, no less than Socrates, avoids simply presenting us with uh, his opinions, but instead encourages us to reflect critically on questions raised by his characters. As we read, we can imagine ourselves joining their conversation, giving your own answers to the Socrates' question and our own reactions to his argument. Most of Plato's early dialogues end without a clear answer, enticing enough to continue the investigation for ourselves. Indeed, one benefit of reading Plato is what writings are designed to encourage this kind of critical reflection. Invite us to think through the arguments ourselves and to come over our own view. This is an important habit whether we are studying philosophy or another academic uh, discipline.